And good afternoon, everyone. Well, believe it or not, human beings are among the few species on Earth that live for an extended period of time after they lose their ability to have children. The only other species that do so do so are, believe it or not, like whales, short fin pilot whales, I understand belugas maybe, killer whales. Well, women typically live for decades after the reproductive period of their lives comes to an end. And while most women live that full third of their lives in good health and uh, productively, st- statistics show that one in 10 women actually leave their jobs because of menopause. Well, why is that? Our guest today on On Target is Amanda Thebe, a women's health export, expert Sorry, with nearly 30 years of experience in the fitness industry. She's the author of the best-selling book, Menopocalypse, How I Learned to Thrive During Menopause and How You Can Too. She's in St. John's presenting No Time to Pause, Menopause in the Workplace to employees of Fortis, Newfoundland Power, and Labrador Hydro. She joins me now. Hello. Hi, Linda. Thank you for having me on the show today. So happy you could join us. I guess we'll start with some of the basics. What exactly is menopause? Well, menopause signifies the end of a woman's reproductive life. And it's signified by not having a period for 12 months. And so it's a retrospective, really. You don't know until it's happened. So you have to look back and go, oh, yeah, it's been 12 months. I'm now in menopause. And I think that one of the things that we don't talk about enough, well, we don't talk about menopause enough anyway, but what we don't discuss enough is the period leading up to that, which is perimenopause. And that's where a lot of women really struggle with symptoms that don't make a whole lot of sense. Yeah, because they can catch you unawares. Well, the thing is, we never got taught about this in school, frustratingly so. Our mums never talked to us about it. So I think a lot of women go through the idea that, you know, menopause, you just have a few hot flashes, you don't have your period anymore, and then Bob's your uncle type thing, when it's further away, couldn't be further away from the truth. And so what we do know is that perimenopause is the, is the time that lasts between 8 and 10 years from our late 30s up to the average age of about 51, where our estrogen and progesterone, our men reproductive hormones, decline, decline to a very low level. And during that 8 to 10 years, symptoms will come and go that make no sense whatsoever. They can be neurological, they can be physical, they don't always feel hormonal. And what's happening is women are looking for answers and nobody's talking about it. But we've started, we've started talking about it and I love that. So uh, two very um, important hormones here, estrogen and progesterone. What role do they play? Let's start with estrogen. Well, so estrogen is really the main player in this. Progesterone is there to help you have children. And that's when we have our period every month when we, you know, we don't get pregnant. And so estrogen actually declines in quite a linear manner, almost like going down a slide. It's it's a very, um, it just falls down. And But what can happen is women can um, stop being able to sleep well. And progesterone has like a almost anti-anxiety calming effect on our body. And so a lot of women, it will impact their sleep. Whereas estrogen, when it starts to decline, falls like a a crazy roller coaster. It's up and down, back and forth. It's like playing whack-a-mole with your hormones. Nobody has a clue what's happening. 
And estrogen plays a really important role in our body. In fact, even though it's only it's produced mainly in our ovaries, it impacts almost every single system in our body. So it impacts our brain health, our heart health, our muscles and our bones, everything, our gut, you name it, it impacts it. So women will start struggling with symptoms there of depression or anxiety in perimenopause, or maybe they might have heart palpitations or migraines and aching joints, and nobody automatically looks at those symptoms and goes, oh, that's because of menopause. They'll go, well, that's because you de- you've depression, so I'm going to give you antidepressants. You know, it's not been looked at properly. And that's simply due to a lack of conversation and education in this field, including in the medical field. Do you think women uh, themselves are going through this and may not recognize it as uh, this perimenopausal period? They might be saying to themselves, what is wrong with me today? I can't, well, I'm getting upset over the weirdest things. What's going on? Oh, for sure. And I know that this is a fact. I have a massive community, maybe of about 80,000 women now, because I've been talking about this for about four or five years. And it's always the same things. Am I losing my mind? I can't remember where I've put the remote control. Well, it's in the fridge, by the way, because it always is. And it's just these, like this brain fog that falls over women and they don't feel like they're completely in control of what they're doing. And it doesn't happen to all women, but we do know statistically about 75% of women will suffer from perimenopausal symptoms and 25% of women will have life-altering symptoms. Their quality of life will be completely impacted. It's sort of what happened to me in set me down this path of talking about it. And I think that if women were to know that we already recognize there are 34 plus symptoms of perimenopause, it would just be really helpful to them. So they didn't feel like they were going crazy, right? They just had a bit more control over their their health and what was happening. Well, let's talk about that a little bit, because we hear a lot about some of the stereotypes associated with uh, menopause or perimenopause. Oftentimes we, we make light of them, uh, you know, and you see them in, in popular media, you know, the hot flashes, the mood swings, the loss of libido. Do all exper- uh, women experience that? What are some of these symptoms? Yeah, I mean, sometimes it's pretty unfair when we see this and it's it's probably sexist and ageist as well, but maybe we don't want to go there on this show. I'm very opinionated about that. But, you know, some of the like worst symptoms that women do talk about, we know we've got studies where symptoms are recorded. For sure, vasomotor symptoms are a big deal. And vasomotor symptoms are hot flashes, night sweats, cold sweats. We know women um, get impacted by them. And it's to do with the fact that estrogen helps us with our thermoregulatory system in our body. And when that connection sort of not working properly, our body just is all over the place. Some women experience 30, 40, even more hot flashes a day. And, and they're not just inconvenient. They're actually linked with poorer health outcomes too. So we do need to give women these this education. The neurological impacts of perimenopause are really just starting to be discussed more openly now because we know that our brain adapts as the estrogen and progesterone start to decline. We also know that the brain starts to re-adapt and rebound in post-menopause. So this is a transition. This isn't, you know, for life. For most women, the, the symptoms that they experience start to get better as they go through to the other side because this is... I like to say this is a, a light at the end of a tunnel. It's not a cave. You know, there is an exit at the end of this. 
Our guest today on On Target is Amanda Thebe, a women's health expert. She's in town to talk about no time to pause, menopause in the workplace. We'll be back right after this. Our guest today on On Target is Amanda Thebe. She's a women's health expert. She's in St. John's, actually, speaking to uh, people at uh, Fortis, Newfoundland Power, Newfoundland Labrador Hydro about menopause and it's something that we don't hear much about and you were talking about some of the symptoms Amanda just before the break and um, the whole idea of the hot flashes everybody has heard about it what exactly is a hot flash or a hot flush well I mean it's really hard to describe for a lot of people but it almost feels like your body's just getting taken over with this incredible heat that doesn't make a lot of sense and you know, especially in the workplace, women may be in meetings or, you know, speaking to people and they, this hot flash comes over them and it, and it just feels like it's out of control. They start sweating, then they get freezing cold. And we know this is the body's way of trying to adjust to its perceived temperature change due to the lack of estrogen that we have in our body. Um, and, you know, it can impact um, the symptoms when we were talking about them. We know hot flashes are the most common one that we we all talk about. Not every woman's going to get them, but you know, approximately seventy five percent of women, like I said, will experience some menopausal symptoms. And some other real common ones that we hear about all the time are depression and anxiety, and brain fog. The brain fog is an all encompassing term that means that you know we we just are not operating cognitively as well as we can, which can be fleeting. It can come and go. But it can be really troublesome. And if we, a lot of women feel like this may be the onset of like a dementia or an Alzheimer's. And um, we know that most women, you know, recover from this as, it, as they go through this menopause transition. And I think that, you know, if we can open up some of these conversations and be very, very truthful and accurate, then women can start to feel empowered. They know they have these symptoms. They can start making changes changes and advocate for, for themselves with their medical provider. And, and another symptom that almost every woman will go through, and I'm not sure this is okay to say this on the radio, but hey, home, I've said it before and I'm going to go again, is the genital urinary symptoms of menopause. The genital urinary symptoms of menopause are essentially anything that impacts the pelvic floor region and it may appear as like dryness or sexual pain or you know other uh, continuing to have infections all the time in the pelvic area and what we know is that this is something that almost all women will struggle with and it can be prevented and it needs lifelong care so it's something that's sort of chronic that will always be with us and a lot of women don't even do anything about this until they're in their 60s and usually it's an irreversible condition and so I'm like, we have to be able to talk about this publicly. I mean, it might might not be easy for everybody, but if we know that this is something that is simple to treat and it's something your doctor can help you with, then I, I'm okay having this conversation. So are we talking about uh, hormone replacement therapy? Uh, is that right for everybody? Yeah, that's a super great question. And I might add, when I talk about anything to do with hormone therapy or therapeutics or anything, I talk about this um, with being completely in line with the medical consensus, with all of the medic medical organizations, the menopause organizations. This isn't my opinion. I don't have the validity to be able to do that. I'm not a doctor. But the, the hormone societies, 
that, that the first line treatment for menopause symptoms is hormone therapy. Hormone therapy that is regulated by Health Canada, that should be the first option for women. Um, it's indicated for the vasomotor symptoms like the hot flashes, for the vaginal atrophy, the genital urinary symptoms of menopause, and um, some mood disorders too. And it can also be helpful for bone health because we know that that gets impacted through menopause. But, and this is a huge but, and I think it's really important to have this conversation, not every woman needs hormone therapy. Not every woman can take hormone therapy. There are some contraindications. For example, if you're a breast cancer survivor, some women, and I fall into this next category, are very sensitive to hormones and don't do well on hormone therapy. But the good thing to know is that there are new pharmaceuticals um, on the, the market, like they're, they're creating new pharmaceuticals for women within those categories. Some antidepressants and anti-seizure medications at a very low dose are used off-label to help with menopause symptoms. So essentially what I'm saying is when we talk about menopause, if you're looking at it from a medical standpoint and you do need medical help, then there are options for you. And there is guidelines out there for our doctors to be able to review. Unfortunately, education in our medical world hasn't happened. So many doctors don't even know about menopause, unfortunately. Um, but that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to get these resources out to women to give them the, the ability to be able to advocate for themselves. And then on, on the flip side of that, like hormone therapy may or may not be an option, but every single woman needs to start looking at her health, her lifestyle choices, because this is our time to look forward and think the average age for living after menopause is 33.3 years, approximately a third of our lives. We want them to be strong and healthy, right? So this is also an opportunity to be able to sort of do all of the lifestyle things that menopausal women should be doing. I've heard some women say, you know what, I went through it, didn't bother me a bit, hardly knew anything was going on. Other women are plagued with it. Um, and it strikes me that uh, with um, things like hot flashes, while some people, uh, it's more bothersome than other times, um, loss of sleep is a big thing. And that impacts every aspect of your life when you can't get a good night's sleep. It's a cascade, right? If you, you don't sleep, you become stressed. If you become stressed, your chances are you're likely to have extra cravings. If you have extra cravings, you may be not keeping on top of your weight and you maybe don't feel like moving. And then, you know, this compounds and it compounds and it compounds. To me, one of the first places as far as lifestyle um, choices are concerned is looking at sleep hygiene. And the problem is with sleep hygiene, when we're trying to get good quality sleep, we know it gets impacted through menopause. It's a known thing. Um, we have to start looking at ways that we can start supporting better sleep in our midlife and beyond. But these things take ages. Sleep hygiene, when you start looking at it, can take months and months and months to kick in. And so people might say, yeah, I'm starting to take like a hot bath and some herbal tea before bed. And I've done it for two weeks and I'm still not sleeping. I'm like, yeah, keep going, keep going, keep going, because this is something you're going to always have to do, right? Look after yourself. Make sure that you are actually sleeping. And so there are a few things that the National Sleep Foundation recommend, things like um, removing yourself from your screens at least an hour before your bed. None of us do that. We all watch our phones in bed. It's a really, really bad habit. 
and to make sure that our rooms are cooler, that it's a better sleep environment. Maybe for someone with hot flashes, some sleep um, sheets that um, can control the wicking of our sweat, you know, to keep us cool. Um, and so there's a whole ton of things that the National Foundation, Sleep Foundation recommend. Um, and I highly recommend women sort of look at that as one of the things that they can sort of take control of. And also, if you need to with therapeutics, then go and speak to your doctor too. Like there isn't, I always feel, Linda, like when we talk about menopause, you've just said there's a wide range in experience. We need to look at the one person in front of us and talk just to that woman. And her needs are going to be different from yours and mine. Right. And I'm thinking in terms of hormone replacement therapy, you mentioned uh, it's not for every woman. So for the, uh, I mean, for some women, they, yes, they are plagued with uh, some of these symptoms and they are problematic and uh, they may seek out uh, hormone um, therapy. But uh, for others who are sort of just sort of getting through it and all that sort of thing, are there, is there anything they can do to help minimize some of those symptoms? Yes, they t- they totally is, and um, this is sort of the drum that I keep banging. So I'm happy that you asked me that question, because I would actually say, regardless of how easy or hard your menopause experience is, the impact of us losing our reproductive hormones is actually shown as poor health outcomes for women. That doesn't particularly mean we're all going to get sick, but what it does mean is that when we don't have the protective factor of estrogen, we become at higher risk of cardiovascular disease of being insulin resistant, which can lead to diabetes um, and higher risk of bone and um, muscle loss, a skeletal muscle loss, um, amongst other things. And so we know that these are things that happen to women in post-menopause after we've gone through the menopause transition. But it's not shouted enough, loud enough from the, the rooftops, in my opinion. And so what we do know about all of those things I've just mentioned is that they can be minimized, the risk can be minimized or even reversed with looking at things like our daily movement. Are you moving enough? Probably not. Most of us are too sedentary. What type of exercise are you doing? If you're at risk of osteoporosis or muscle loss, which many women are, then strength training is a really great way to offset that. And it can help with some of your menopausal symptoms too. I want to explore that a little bit more when we come back after the break. Our guest today on on Target is uh, women's health expert Amanda Thiep. She's in St. John's to talk menopause. We'll be back right after this. And we're back. Our guest today on On Target is Amanda Thebe, a women's health expert. She's also the author of Menopocalypse, not easy to say. And she's looking quite fierce on the on the cover there. Um, she's a uh, women's health expert who is uh, helping women through the menopause journey. And just before the break, you were mentioning some of the more serious effects on the body that come with menopause or postmenopause: bone loss, uh, loss of muscle mass, weight gain. What does that mean for women who want to stay fit and healthy? It's an opportunity. That's what I think. And I think that, you know, I look at it this way. In our 20s and 30s, all of us were fixated on, you know, how thin we were and how, you know, how we looked. And, And there should always be, you know, it's okay to have an element of vanity in there. But I think that as we get older, we shift the perspective from, you know, the, the thinness, which was really damaging for most of us women growing up, to how can, we, how can we take charge of our health? How can I live a long 
and healthy life, one where I have my independence as I get older, because they're the things that we see in our senior population. And the, a lot of these things are preventable. And so this is like for me, and actually the second part of my book is all about like the pillars of health that we can we can take control of. And they're not particularly difficult to do either. I think that when a lot of people think that they need to turn things around or just start being more attentive to their overall health, they think it requires them going on a crazy diet or, you know, joining a gym and going six days a week. And it's, it's often not that. What we want people to do is do these small changes over and over again on rinse and repeat that have really great health outcomes and they're called like progress steps and data backs this as well data shows that if we do these small lifestyle things day in and day out the chances are that you keep doing them in five and ten years is going to be there whereas if we do something extreme like an extreme diet we're going to do it for a few weeks of adherence and then we're going to stop and we're going to fail and so to me, I'm just like, if we can get women to focus on our overall health and just say, hey, on your lunchtime, have you thought about maybe going for a 30-minute walk? It's really helpful for your brain health, for your heart health, for your mood, if you've got depression or anxiety. There's tons of benefits to just a simple walk and being in nature, right? It doesn't have to be exotic. It doesn't have to be difficult. Does bone loss in particular, though, pose any added challenges to staying active? Yes, yeah, so bone loss is a is a big deal through perimenopause. And so what we what we know is that estrogen is intrinsic in the building of our bone strength, our tensile bone strength. And when we lose estrogen, it means that we're at a higher risk of bone loss. And we see this a lot. One in two women will have a fracture, you know, after postmenopause. Now, the fracture might be like a wrist fracture or something small, but what it does show us is that there are a higher risk for this happening. And we also know the health outcomes of hip fractures is um, it, it actually can be fatal. You know, in the U.S., we know that 40,000 women a year who have hip fractures will die as a result of that, which is more than women that die of breast cancer. It's actually a, a significant number. But if we know we're at higher risk of that, what can we do? What can we do to make sure that that is something that doesn't happen to us? Well, if you're already super high risk, I would definitely recommend speaking to your doctor about that because sometimes it takes more than lifestyle. You might need um, help medically. You know, there's medicine that's available by, by your phosphonate. So, and bone health. But from a lifestyle perspective, eating adequate protein, we do need adequate protein to help with us to maintain our muscle mass. And even though women think they don't have muscle, they do, otherwise you'd be a big blob of jelly. The muscle mass you have now, you want to maintain, it helps support your bones. It's literally the glue that keeps the bones together, right? So we need to have adequate protein to support that. We need to be moving more. Walking is a great example of that, riding your bike, swimming. Strength training is the top of the hierarchy of exercise that can actually change the structure of the bones. I mean, all exercise counts. Obviously, we want everyone to exercise. But if you're really looking to improve bone health, then strength training is the way to go. Is it preferable over, let's say, cardiovascular training? Well, I mean, I'll never say don't do cardiovascular training. The the health suggestions from all of the governing bodies stand true. We want 150 minutes of moderate um, cardiovascular exercise a week or 75 minutes of vigorous exercise. 
So that's just the movement that we do, like with the, the cardiovascular is like a moderate, it would be going for a walk and being a little bit out of breath. Um, and in addition to that, two strength training class, two strength training sessions a week of 30 minutes. They're the recommendations and they, and they hold true. A combination of both cardiovascular work and um, strength training is best for our overall health and for longevity. You touched on this earlier, but what are the, I guess, uh, protective impacts of hormones on heart and cardiovascular health? I remember reading not too long ago that um, uh, women surpass men when it comes to cardiovascular health up to menopause, and then we level right out. We level right out. That's right. And so, and it's the number one killer of women, isn't it, in the country? And so, yeah, like that's that's what I was saying about when we take our focus away from um, being thin and how we look and then start looking at health outcomes. So what we know helps with heart health is reducing our hypertension and our blood pressure. And we can do that through lifestyle factors. In fact, they're the recommended ways of doing that from our medical um, societies. So that's our moderate to vigorous cardiovascular um, workouts or walking and our strength training. They're still there in the recommendations. When we look at food, I think food plays a huge role in our overall health outcomes. And I think that we just don't realize that. And as we get older, we definitely need to be looking more at where our protein is coming from. As you get your, your, Needs as you get older just increase anyway, but they specifically increase through menopause. And then when we look at the rest of your plate, if you're looking at it, we definitely need an abundance of vegetables. A plant-forward way of eating is so good for your heart. And then looking at things like carbohydrates, for all of us, we've all been taught all our lives how bad carbohydrates are. And it's such a bad message because it's the primary fuel source for our body. So looking at adding some rice or some potatoes to your meal is perfectly fine and acceptable. Where we do fall off, though, is when we eat these hyper-palatable, ultra-processed meals. So when I'm saying it's okay to eat potatoes, I'm not saying go and eat a bag of chips, bag of crisps. I don't know what you call them in Newfoundland. I call them crisps. I still can't get over that. And so I think it's just looking at things in moderation. If you, we want the fun carbs, you know, the ones that are, that make us want to eat more, that spike our desire center, then they're the ones that we need to reduce. We should never restrict anything, but look at the, the whole food sort of plate first and then add some treats, you know, later. I also might add the alcohol as well. Alcohol is one of those things that we're learning more and more and more about over time. And we know specifically how it can impact our our heart and our brain as, as it's a neurotoxin. And so the new guidelines have just come out to suggest that one to three drinks a week should be our goal and not more than that. And that can be very difficult for a lot of people to sort of accept, but it's really one of the, the best ways you can take control of your health. And easier said than done though, right, Linda? 
Uh, well, for a lot of people, yes. I personally doesn't bother me at all. I don't. I don't drink at all, which um, a lot of people might find a bit shocking. But <laughs> there you have it. But I totally get it. I mean, I know a lot of people that do enjoy. They need it to relax, to enjoy themselves, to you know, for a lot of reasons. So, um, I I can understand that perfectly. Now, when it comes to our our diets, though, that's a little bit difficult because we all lead very very busy lives, and we all know what it's like, and the cost of food and groceries. Yeah. not to mention, you know, and especially as, you know, particularly if you happen to be retired and you're on a fixed income, it's just impossible to keep up with those kind of costs. Do you recommend supplements if, if you know, you can't get those those vegetables on your plate? That's a really great question. And, you know, I hear you and I'm actually about to go to Loblaw shopping and it breaks my heart every time I go with three men over six foot tall in my household. It's exhausting on my wallet. And We've just got to the point now where we're really having to count the pennies when it comes to our food. And so I definitely would just suggest to people that it's okay to buy foods that are ready made in tins of like so for example fruit and vegetables tinned fruit and vegetables and frozen fruit and vegetables often are a really cost-effective way of getting extra nutrients into your meal and there's nothing wrong with them and in fact frozen fruit and veg um often has more minerals and um, vitamins and micronutrients in them because they're frozen really quickly after being picked. Um, but is there is there a place for supplementation in our diet? I would say so. But here's the thing. A lot of supplements are expensive and you can usually get the supplementation from food sources cheaper, typically. A lot of people will spend a lot of money on supplements that they don't need. So they just sort of create an expensive pee. But if there's some true deficiencies there, if it's being recognized, you know, either in blood work or, you know, you just know you've got deficiencies, then supplementation can definitely help. And I think for some people, taking a, a multivitamin is not going to hurt you. It's just looking at the cost-benefit ratio, right? And, um, you know, for some people who are maybe concerned about the osteoporosis conversation we just had, then taking calcium and vitamin D can be a great thing to add as a supplement and and especially in Canada in the winter our vitamin D um, sources are, are a little bit less we don't have as much sun and so supplementing with vitamin D can be useful but I would just sort of just caveat that with if we took every single supplement that was recommended we'd be taking over 100 supplements and we've got to draw the line somewhere so get most of your nutrients from food where possible and if any shortfalls are there then then I would supplement them. When we come back after the break, I want to ask you a little bit about uh, attitudes, both from society and in a, our own attitudes when it comes to aging and, and the like. Um, when we come back after the break, our guest today on On Target is Amanda Thebe, a women's health expert. She's talking about menopause and she's in town to talk about her new book. When we come back right after this. And we're back. Our guest today on On Target is Amanda Thieb, and she's talking about uh, menopause specifically. But a lot of what you're saying, Amanda, is just good common sense for people at any stage in their life. Yeah, I mean, that's me. I'm just always giving out common sense. And I think that what I've realized after having decades in this industry and knowing about nutritional science and exercise science is that First of all, like menopause hit me like a sledgehammer and I had no idea it was happening. And I just was very frustrated that, you know, my industry never spoke about it. But then I actually then just realized that 
all of the foundational stuff that I'd learned still means a lot during menopause, even if it feels like it doesn't. But it's so essential. As we learn and learn, we realize how important it is to to live a long and healthy life. And so, yeah, honestly, most people will ask me, you know, what should I be doing about this? And it's always the same answers. Well, improve your sleep, improve your stress. And why don't you move more? And maybe look at looking at a more balanced diet. And sometimes starting at those places, very small, have huge out, you know, outcomes for people. You say menopause hit you like a sled, sledgehammer. What was it about menopause that affected you so significantly? Well, I went into my 40s as a fitness professional, like with an audience of a lot of women being sort of like an advocate for being healthy and are trying to do the best to be healthy. And then when I was about 42, I just started to feel very unwell. I struggled with vertigo and nausea. I would lose feeling in my face down one side of my body. I couldn't walk. I kept falling over. And it was just crazy. And it would come and go and come and go. Um, And then ultimately I had depression, which I didn't realize was depression at the time. And for a series of two years, I was seeing medical specialists um, in Canada too. And I would have an MRI scans, CAT scans, you name it. And everybody kept saying, we can see something's not right, but we don't know what's wrong with you. Um, And I just felt like I was failing. I just felt like I was failing at life. I became a recluse. I stopped socializing my relationships with my husband and my kids changed it was like I was a shell of a person and I hear this all the time with women this my story is very very typical and 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 I hear it and it breaks my heart and I then went to a gynecologist who just knew what he was doing and just said hey you're not losing your mind you're just losing your estrogen and I can help you and I first of all I was like relieved and cried and was like good now I know what's happening I can do something about it but then I was just really angry and just thought well why the hell didn't I know about this I'm now 44 years old by the time I'd seen the gynecologist and I'm only learning this now it was just very frustrating for me and so I started having this conversation and it's just catapulted there's so many women now follow me because they're going through the same thing and it's just a travesty that we're not having these conversations um, I'm not diminishing what happened to you because it sounds very extreme, uh, but uh, some people see menopause for one reason or another, or the post-reproductive years, I suppose, as an affliction. Does it need to be, or, or is it freeing in some ways? It's exactly that. It's definitely freeing. And so despite me being in that 25% of women with extreme symptoms that were life-altering, I'm now, I'm 52 now, I'm four years post-menopause and I've never felt more fulfilled and happy in my life. And statistically, that's what we're seeing. The transitional part of perimenopause seems to be the most troublesome for people. But I also spent a lot of time working with psychologists and talking about how do we age resiliently? How do we have these really hard conversations but also give women the power and in that side of the conversation is so amazing. This really can be an empowering time for women. Women are charging forward in the workplace. Women are starting new careers, new hobbies that are just taking them to places they never thought they would be. They're becoming more empowered in their decision-making and opinions. We definitely care a little bit less than we did about what people think about us, and I love that too. 
because we've grown up in this very ageist world and we're trying to flip that on its head. And I know I'm part of that because I'm very much against the idea that we get old and we're weak and we're crumbling, which is why I have that fierce picture on the front of my my book. I want to show women that I'm a 52-year-old woman and I'm strong and I can kick the kids' butts when I go to the gym with my son, you know, because why shouldn't we? And 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 I'm not an anomaly. This can be how it can be for women. We can be mentally and physically and emotionally powerful after menopause. You mentioned this ageist world, and it strikes me that, you know, one time uh, in in families, postmenopausal women were, were venerated. They were the ones you sought out for, for advice, for wisdom, for guidance. But I don't know if it's Hollywood or popular culture or the, the um, I don't know, the... the um, um, our attitudes towards beauty and those kinds of things, it appears to have changed all that. Why? I do. I feel like we were, just our generation, we were conditioned. Think about when we went to the supermarket and you would always see pictures of women on the beach, actresses actresses with cellulites showing us how bad it was or that they'd put on like three pounds and they looked disgusting. Like we, and, and uh, how dare she have wrinkles and grey hair. I mean, there's a movement now against that, of course, because we've got all of these silver-haired, wonderful women saying, no, screw you, I'm just not going to dye my hair anymore on purpose because of exactly this thing. And, you know, in other cultures, menopause has been studied and women who are in cultures where menopause is talked about, acknowledged and revered are the matriarchs in the family. Like you were saying, like we should be all sitting in tents, smoking our pipe and giving out sage advice. And I think that that's what we deserve to have. And so this is, I think, a, a Western culture phenomena. And but, but women are fighting back. Linda, it's amazing. It's, it's almost like there's a menopause movement of women saying, yep, no, we're not putting up with that anymore. We're quite determined to show everyone just how awesome we are. And it can look different on everyone, right? Are our attitudes towards aging as a whole changing? I mean, we all go through, uh, God willing, uh, we all go through these different uh, uh, phases of our lives and aging is part of it and it should be embraced. Are, are, are we those attitudes changing? I think uh, somewhat. I think we've still got a long way to go. For example, in, in my world of like fitness and exercise and nutrition, I'm often trying to pull magazine articles together and looking for women that are in their 50s exercising that aren't just sat on a chair with two-pound dumbbells is pretty difficult because they don't think people like us exist who move and enjoy exercise, right? So I see that we've got work to do in my world. Um, in, in movies now, though, I, recently at the Golden Globes, I don't know if you saw, there was all of these, the actresses that won were all older than 50 and it was amazing and I'm hoping that this is the tide that's turning I do think though that the ageist tropes that have existed all of our lives are somewhat ingrained in women and I think that that's where a lot of the hard work needs to happen you know the women don't feel like they can age without trying to hide their wrinkles or their grey hair and and I like I said women can do whatever they want with their bodies that's not up to me but I just feel like it should come from a place where they at least appreciate and love where they are because it's aging is a privilege like you said 
You mentioned uh, depression earlier, and um, you know, of course, there's clinical depression, but also there's the realities, uh, those uh, those pensive moments when you're thinking to yourself, ah, contemplating my own mortality now. Um, I am getting older. I may have ignored it until now, whistling past the graveyard, as they say here in Newfoundland. Oh, I love um, that expression. <laughs> <laughs> um, is that part of it, too, that, you know, the, some of those thoughts may start to occur to you and, and get you down? I wrote about this in my book. I have a chapter called When Menopause and Midlife Collide. And I think that it's very difficult to isolate one thing. For sure, through the menopause transition, you've got the changing hormones that can impact us neurologically, but not every woman will get depression. But what we do know is that stresses on our lives completely compound at this time of our lives and sometimes go into aging. So, you know, we might have aging parents or young children because some women aren't having babies until their 40s, right? Or we might have teenage children so we're empty nesters you know they're going to university career challenges health challenges and all of these things seem to just compound all at once and we need to then start prioritizing ourselves and say how can we look after ourselves first and then put everybody else afterwards because that's the right thing to do you know put our own oxygen mask on first and often we don't do that because as women, we're always caring for everybody else. And so these stresses definitely can take hold of a woman and a, a woman. And I think that that's often where the hard work, you know, needs to happen. So, Amanda, we've been having this chat now, and I know my listeners are going to be saying, now, where can I get that book? What's it called again? So uh, what's the name of the book? Menapocalypse. And it's got a picture of you going Rah! on the front. And I'm growling <laughs> at you all. So... The book's called Menopocalypse, How I Learned to Thrive During Menopause and How You Can Too. And I actually had to put that tagline on because I didn't want people to think it literally was like the apocalypse and life would be over. I just wanted to just talk about menopause, nuts and bolts and what's and all. Everything is in this book. and But don't suffer. There's things you can do. And also, let's just change the narrative and, and strive forward, you know, because that's it's I honestly can't emphasize this enough that this is such an amazing time of our lives and we should be celebrating it and we should be celebrated for it too now where can you get the book so head over to my website that's the easiest way it's available on all books in all bookstores and on Amazon but if you go to amandatheeb.com you can buy the book there, but there's also a resources section. So anybody listening to this that doesn't know where to start, I've got everything listed there from the medical societies to prescription guidelines, everything. So hopefully there's some free information for people too. And we'll put some links in uh, in stories. So be watching vocm.com as well for that. Amanda, thank you. Thank you. And we'll be back tomorrow. It may not be me. I've been doing uh, open line. I'll be doing open line throughout the course of the week, actually. Uh, so my friend and colleague, Richard Duggan, may be stepping in for me on, on Target tomorrow. Stay tuned for that. I know he's got a lot of great ideas on the go. Have a great day, and thanks for listening.